So I was looking at really rare things today or last week or whenever I was looking. And you know what the rarest eye color is? Green. That right there. Anyone here have green eyes? Yeah. You're in the one and a half percent of the human population. They say that that eye color actually comes from the Caucasus Mountains, that little kind of land bridge between Europe and Asia. So very rare. Rarest pair of sneakers. Jordan 12s wore in the 1998 finals. Last pair of shoes wore by Michael Jordan when he won his sixth ring. You know how much they sold for? 2.2 million. Yep. Cool 2.2 million. You can have them. Rarest gem. Blue diamond. $4 million for a one carat blue diamond. You want to impress your gal? Blue diamonds. That's the bar right there. Rarest car. 1962 Ferrari 250 G. Isn't that just beautiful? 50 million. You can have that. Man, Ferraris, they're the best. Right after a Volkswagen. Volkswagen, Ferrari. It's just the way it goes. You know what's rarer than all of that? Someone who finishes strong. That's the rarest thing. Every one of us, we took a minute, thought about our family or our friends, or maybe a church you went to, elders and pastors. How many of us could name pretty quickly a bunch of people that we thought, man, they're doing it, and they face plant. And you wonder what happened to them. Because finishing strong is a rare, rare gem. One guy, a theologian, went through the entire Bible, wrote on every single character in the Bible, and tried to determine how many people actually finished strong. At the end of it, he found one in 10 in the Bible finish the race strongly. <sighs> right? That brings us to Nehemiah 13. So, so far in Nehemiah, it's been the best, hasn't it? There's been success, there's been battles, there's been everything for a good, brilliant biblical story. It's an amazing, amazing story. So Nehemiah just, he succeeds, he prays, he says the right thing to his enemies. He does things, he is a force of nature. He is the guy that gets the wall around Jerusalem rebuilt, two and a half miles long. 40 feet high, eight feet thick in 52 days. Come on. You know how much, you know how many tons of rock that is? A lot. It's an amazing feat, right? It's just one after the other of him doing it. He restarts church. They hadn't been doing church forever. He restarts church, chapter eight. And Ezra preaches a six-hour sermon. As my life verse, one day I'll do that. Probably not today, but one day. That gets them so fired up, they have a seven-day Bible camp. That gets them so fired up, they all get together and they confess their sins corporately and they start to pray. And the longest recorded prayer in the Bible is in the book of Nehemiah. Like, it's amazing. And then the magna opus is this. All the people get together and they say, we're going to make a firm covenant before God. We realize that our 
dads and our granddads and our great granddads did some things wrong and we don't wanna be bad photocopies of bad photocopies, so it stops with us. We want a different future for our families and our kids and our city and our country. So we are making a firm covenant before God to live differently. And they make three things, three pledges. They say, this is what we're gonna do. Number one, marriage. We are gonna keep marriages pure. We will not let our kids marry unbelievers. That's number one. Number two, they say this, we will take care of God's house. We will not neglect it. We'll make sure it is a priority, God's house is. And then number three is, we'll keep the Sabbath. We'll make sure and not work on the Sabbath. We'll shut down. We'll make sure there's nothing like that happening. And then they say this, God, curse us if we fail. They call the curse on themselves. If we don't keep these things, curse us. Now we come to Nehemiah 13. And verse six tells us this. Verse six tells us, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So Nehemiah, the force behind all this, the guy that had spent 12 years there of his life, the prime of his life, he'd spent millions of his own dollars feeding people, taking care of people. This guy, faithful, put priests in, put a new government in, crossed every T and dotted every single I. He's called back. So remember, he was the cupbearer to the king. He's the CEO. He's the chief of staff for the king. So the king says, bro, 12 years is long enough. You have to come home. So while he's gone, he's gone long enough. Marriages happen, we'll find out. Kids are born. So he has gone for a long time, maybe five, maybe 10 years. So how do the people fare now that this force of nature is taken out? He's no longer there. How do the people do? Well, there's a saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. That's what happens. Parents with your kids. You ever leave for the weekend? Leave your teenage kids? Did they do everything that you wanted and nothing that you don't? They keep the house spick and span. They go to church on Sunday. They get up on time. They go to bed when they're supposed to. Did they do everything that you asked them to do? Or was it weekend at Bernie's? And you come in and you're like, what happened here? Right? So that's what happens. So let's just look at the three parts of the firm covenant that they said, God, we're gonna do this. Let's see how they kept that, right? Did they do marriages? How'd they do on marriages? Well, let's check this out. Chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. How'd they do on marriage? Not good. They married unbelievers. And when they married unbelievers, their children cannot speak or understand Hebrew. Now, why would that be a problem? Because the Bible was written in Hebrew. So that means their children could not understand the Bible. That's the problem with unbelievers marrying believers. The kids are always confused. What do I believe in? 
They don't know the Bible. That's what always happens. So how do they do on marriage? Strike one, not so good. They said, we're gonna take care of God's house. How do they do on that? Look at verse four. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, he's the pastor, was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. And who was related to Tobiah. You guys remember Tobiah? Good guy or bad guy? He's a bad guy. He's one of the worst guys in the whole book, right? He's a guy that slanders and mocks the Jews. He's a guy that sends a letter to King Artaxerxes saying, Nehemiah is trying to take over. He's leading a rebellion against you, king. This is the guy that does that. He forms an army and the army keeps threatening to come in and kill everybody working on the wall. He gets everybody scared, so they stop working on the wall. That's this guy. He's a guy that makes his money on the misery of other people. That's what chapter two tells us. He was that mad that Nehemiah was seeking the welfare of the people of Jerusalem because he made his money on human trafficking and homeless people and garbage happening. That's how he made his money. So he's mad anyone would come, right? He is a bad guy and he's related to the head pastor, Eliashim. So what happens? Well, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. He's given a little Airbnb in God's house, and he gets to hang out there. And so he removes everything that's supposed to be in there, takes out all of God's stuff, and moves all of his junk in. Massage chairs, giant TVs, slot machine, kegerator. He's partying. Yeah. Probably his idols as well. Right? So I always have to like bring like, okay, what does that mean today? Like, how would that look today? The, the way that this would read to a person in 500 BC, how would that read? How would I make it concrete to us today? It would be like me doing this at this church saying, hey, from now on, down in our kid's wing, we're gonna invite in a drag queen who's gonna give sermons down there. It'd be exactly like that. We, you would just say, you're desecrating God's house. Okay, that's the idea right here. God's house is being desecrated. Strike two, right? How about the Sabbath day? Here's what happens on the Sabbath day, verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. How about that? Sabbath day, you're not supposed to work. What's happening? They are lined up outside the gates of Jerusalem like a Walmart on Black Friday. That's what's happening right here. Strike three. So when you read through the book of Nehemiah, and we've spent 14 weeks on it, you wish it would have ended at chapter 12. Because then it would be, and they lived happily ever after. But you know what I love most about the Bible? The fact that it never ends that way that it's true, that it's gritty, that it's real, 
that it's honest. Chapter 13, I just call it reality check. That's what it is. This is a reality check, right? This is what happens. The Bible talks about dark days. The Bible talks about behaviors, believers behaving very badly. Listen to the heroes of the faith. Abraham, good guy or bad guy? Uh, right? Yes. <laughs> he does some good things, but then he lies about his wife repeatedly. She gets taken into another man's harem, and then he sleeps with her slave and has an illegitimate child. Yeah, that's kind of a bummer. Moses, good guy or bad guy? Eh. He murders a guy. That kind of usually eliminates most people from the good list, right? You're on the naughty list now. Then loses his temper so bad, God says, you can't go in the promised land. Oh, that's a bummer. David, the greatest king in scripture. How's he? Good guy or bad guy? Uh, he commits adultery, lies, and then murders the husband. Like, oh, that's a bummer. Solomon, wisest man in the Bible. Good guy or bad guy? Uh, has a thousand wives. That's a problem in most people's book. Right? You just go down the line. You're like, oh. Reality check is what I love most about scripture. It's not a fairy tale. In fact, from God's perspective, the Bible is a horror show. We'll get to Genesis 6 on Wednesday nights. That's how God views it. Like, oh, man. So you remove Nehemiah, who is the force that's holding Jerusalem together. When that force is removed, everything goes downhill. Because a fact of life is it's much easier to roll downhill than it is to keep pushing uphill. And to finish strong, you're pushing uphill. Easy to go downstream, hard to keep swimming day after day after day after day. So chapter 13 is, man, you take out that force, look out. This is what happens. And it happens really fast. C.S. Lewis said, all men have two, thing in, two things in common. Number one, we know it's right. Number two, we don't do it. Oh, okay, that's pretty true. Chapter 13. So here's the question. Here's the wisdom from Nehemiah in chapter 13. How do you and I respond to the reality checks in our own life personally, in the country that we live in, in the city that we live in, in the culture we live in? How do we respond when, hey, covenants are broken, when bad stuff happens? How do we respond? And it's pretty brilliant. Number one, here's how you respond. Number one, you get angry. Look at this, verse eight. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Best line in Nehemiah right there. I scalped a few of them. They deserved it. <laughs> and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's a really bad guy. These guys are intertwined into this whole thing, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Just imagine for a second, I pull a Nehemiah here. Someone shows up that I know is a sinner and they're blowing it. And I go after them and I beat them up and I pull out their hair and chase them out of here. Could you imagine that? That'd go viral on Instagram, wouldn't it? This is crazy. But I think it's necessary. I think if we don't get angry, we're not paying attention. 
They want, to be a, they want to be cursed. They said, hey, God, curse us if we do this. And Nehemiah says, okay, that's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna beat you. I'm gonna pull out your hair. I'm gonna do exactly what you asked for. Too much of American Christianity is so passive now. Just, well, you know, all right, all right. We are supposed to be a group of people that speak the truth in love, that we are our bedrock just can't go any lower than this. I will tell you the truth no matter what. I'm not gonna accept lies. I will tell you the truth. But I think now most churches have traded truth for tolerance. You know, I just don't wanna stir. I don't, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna try to. Mm, mm. I was talking to a guy and his church was moving in directions that I, I couldn't quite figure out scripturally. So I was asking him about it. Like, you know, what, what's going on here? And this is what I was told. Matt, we will be on the right side of history. I just went, oh. I said, I don't care about being the right side of history. History is terrible, bad, 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 bad. I want to be on the right side of eternity. That's my goal. I don't care about tolerance. You know, there's a magazine right now for Christians. It's called Relevant Magazine. They sent it to me. I throw it away. I don't care about being relevant. Why do I want to be relevant in this culture today? I want to be absolutely opposite from relevant. I want to be irrelevant, right? We need to get more anger, I think, at the stuff that's happening. And then personally, I think we need a lot more anger at our own sin, our own failing, our own junk. The Bible says this, hate the garment spotted by the flesh, not corroded or destroyed, the little teeny spot, the little teeny tiny stain, hate that garment that simply is spotted by the flesh. I think we need more of that. I think American Christianity is becoming soft and comfortable and easy and pansy-ish. So you read 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and you can hardly read any old book where they don't have at least a chapter or a sermon or something on call. It's called Mortification of the Flesh. It's from Romans 8.13, where it says, literally, mortify the deeds of the flesh. You know what mortify means? Kill it. Put it to death. Hate it. Destroy it. Go crazy on it. That's what mortification means. You don't hear that very much, do we, anymore? One of my favorite verses on mortification is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Where, where the author just says this. In your struggle against sin, mortification, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How rich is that? Oh, it's hard. Show me the blood. That's what Hebrews is saying. I can't. Show me where you bled then. That's called mortification of the flesh. I don't think we do that anymore. I think this is what we do now. So many years ago, I just graduated from college. As fate would have it, the year I graduate, 3,000 Boeing engineers were laid off. So it made it very difficult for engineers to get a job when I graduated because they were all looking for five years of experience or more. Guess what I didn't have? Any experience. So very hard. So I did what most guys do when they can't find a job, move back with mom. So I'm here and I'm just taking any odd jobs. I'm doing construction, I'm sweeping, didn't matter. And so a friend of a friend, like 
Four months into it, it's two weeks from Thanksgiving. She has this little farm out in Merlin and she'd raise these turkeys for meat and she needed help harvesting them. So I got volunteered. I'm like, hey, no problem, I'll go out there. I've never done anything like that. I was raised in the city. So go out there and um, she's like, hey, uh, great to meet you. These turkeys are her friends. She has, she has nicknamed them Trudy and Tiffy. So they're just following her, eating out of her hands, like best friends with her. So I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, have you ever done this? No, I haven't. So she said, here's what we're gonna do. And she had this kind of board up in these trees with these ropes on it. She said, you gotta grab a hold of her legs, get them up, put the rope around their ankle, and then, then we'll proceed from there. I said, okay. Well, that's hard. I mean, these are big birds. They're probably 30 pounds, 30 plus pounds. So I'm, you know, they're flopping. You got just feathers going everywhere. So finally I get them tied up. And she's like the whole time, calm down, Trudy. Calm down, Tiffy. Go to your happy place. I'm like, a freezer will be pretty happy for them. Pretty peaceful, I'm pretty sure, right? So I get that done. And she's like, okay, now we want to do this gently. Okay. So she pulls out this like tiny little handle that had an ax on her or a, at some point had a hammer on it, but it was broken off. So it's just this little handle. She goes, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to just tap them on the head. I said, all right. So tap. Well, didn't do anything but make that bird mad. And it actually flew all the way up with its leg tied and it's just flying in the air. And then Tiffy sees that, does the same thing. So it's just Feathers are going everywhere. Their wings are hitting and beating branches of this tree. And it's just like a down, you know, blanket opened up. Just crazy, raining down feathers. And the lady's freaking. Ah, ah, ah. So finally they come back down. She's like, okay, okay. A little harder. Just a tiny, weeny, teeny bit harder. All right, you're the boss. Tap. Ah, same thing again, right? Both of them, feathers going everywhere. They come back down. I said, lady, stand back. And I mortified them. I swung for the fence and it was over. I think too often we treat sin like pet turkeys. I just, I'm just a little tap. Oh, it just makes it, your sin angry. We do all these things but mortify, don't we? Like we have all these excuses and all these ways of not doing what God wants us to do. We qualify our sin. I'm not gossiping, God. I'm informing people so that they can pray for that person. No. You're gossiping. We justify it. God, I've worked so hard, God. I deserve a little break. I deserve to go there, do that, turn that on, watch that. We justify, right? We don't mortify anymore. It's too hard. We qualify it. God, you know, those rules are for other people. I'm strong. I can handle sin. We do all these things, and the Bible says, you need to be like Nehemiah, angry. Scalp your sin. Swing for the fence. It's the only way you will ever get over this stuff. Number one, I think we gotta get a lot more angry at sin, culturally, city-wise, and personally, just like Nehemiah did. You guys broke covenant. You're cursed. I'm gonna beat you and chase you, and I'm gonna take your hair out. That's the way we gotta look at sin. Number two, he confronts and warns. Check this out, verse 11. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Verse 25. 
And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I know this is the second time, but I love this verse. <laughs> verse 15, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. And verse 21, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And I don't think it was to pray for them. Okay? It is confronting what is wrong and warning people about what's wrong. Confront and warn. We need more of this. I need to be confronted. I need to be warned. Genesis 4, the chapter after the fall, Cain is warned by God, confronted by God. Listen, sin is creeping outside your door. It's a beast ready to pounce on you. And you better have dominion over it because if you don't, it will rule over you. God warns Cain. He doesn't listen and kills his brother. I mean, more of that. Maybe five, six years ago, there was this guy, he would come around to staff and he would literally say this to the male staff. He'd say, hey, are you looking at porn? Just straight up, like randomly, you're like, oh, okay. Guess we're talking about that right now. Now, why would he say that? Because statistically, 50% of men that claim to be Christian look at porn. And he would say, hey, you're looking at porn? And if the guy said, uh-uh, he said, let me see your phone. Woo! Who's handing the phone over to him? We need more of that. That's confronting and warning. It's what Nathan the prophet did to David. He confronted David. After David had committed adultery, murdered somebody, Nathan goes into King David's courtroom and just says, you're the man. Was he putting his life on the line? Yeah, David had just killed somebody. He wasn't above murder. We need more Nathans. More Nathans to be saying, bro, I'm seeing something in you. But I've been hearing something about you. Your business practices, your marriage, the way you're treating your kids, the way you treat your employees, whatever it is, I'm seeing something in you. We need more confronting and warning before sin devours us. Thirdly and lastly, you remove and you replace. Verse seven. And I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign. And then he replaces. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses of Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. We remove and we replace. I think Christians need to stop tolerating Tobias. And we need to stop tolerating the Elishibs that put them in positions of power. Just no tolerance. We got to remove them because this is what the enemy wants to do. He always wants to work in somebody and do the right kind of position. I get that guy into the church, get him in as an elder, get him into the pulpit, get him on the school board, 
get him on the city council, get him somewhere where he can devastate people and culture. That's what he does, right? It happens all the time in church. Maybe you saw this a couple weeks ago. This was part of the body of Christ, right? That we get lumped into. Pastor invites drag queen to church for children's sermon, right? That church needs to die. It needs to be removed and replaced with a God-fearing, Bible-teaching church. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. And I never get it. Why do pagans and progressives want into the church? Right, the government's given them their blessing. Technology has blessed them. The entertainment industry's blessed them. Music industry's blessed them. Our public education has blessed them. Our colleges have blessed them. Why in the world would they want in the church? You know why? Because it's spiritual. The enemy comes to tempt Jesus. He tempts him three times. The last temptation is the temptation that Satan actually wants. He says, Jesus, Matthew 4, verse 9, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of earth. That's what Satan actually wants. Read Isaiah 14. Read Ezekiel 28 about the fall of Lucifer. What he actually wanted was, I want God's place. I want people to worship me. Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all this. Jesus rebukes him, says, get away from me. Since Satan couldn't win that, guess what he wants now? I want the body of Christ to bow down and worship me. And that's why the church is always on this firing line of the enemy because it's a spiritual battle. He wants to get it. And sadly, he's getting it because of weak pastors and pathetic theologians that warp and twist scripture to say things it does not say. And that's what's happening right now. So Matt, what do you do when you can't remove and replace people? I get it. Sometimes we're stuck for years with leaders that don't fear God and don't love God. I get it. Happens all the time. So there are two ways that believers can always do something. Number one, we protest. And protest is important. We're called the entire, right? Everyone, Roman Catholics were called Protestants because we are protesting something 400 years ago, 500 years ago. We said, no more, it can't be that way. We're to protest, protest things. That's wrong. You should not be able to do that. You should not be able to say that to children. You should not be able to kill babies. You should not be able to sterilize, drug, and mutilate children. No, we should protest more and more and more. And if you can't change anything, then guess what? Number two is, do not participate. I call it non-participation. Okay, fine, I won't participate in that. If you're gonna parade that through our town at the parade, I'm not going. But my kids love it so much. That's why you can't go. Because they know that right there. If we can slip it in, in these little ways. If the library's gonna be doing stuff like that, I'm not going anymore. And my kids won't go. And I won't vote for any money to go to the library. You stop participating. Those are our two things. We protest. No, 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 no. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. And then if that does not work, we say, okay, I won't participate anymore. It's remove and replace. Sometimes we have to remove ourselves. That's what we have to do. And we live in a time of unprecedented lies. Do you know that? Just even 10 years ago, things that people were like, that's a lie. They're not lies anymore. Right? Not moms, it's birthing person. What? 
right? Men can get pregnant. Men can have periods. I know every woman wants that to be true, but it's not, it's still a lie. Here's what's crazy. Those lies are taught on college campuses as undeniable truths today. Well, just 10 years ago, we've been like, that's never gonna happen. Oh yeah, it's happening. And every future leader is gonna be indoctrinated with that stuff right there. It's insane to me. It's insane. So what do we do, right? What do we do to try to stop this kind of thing? What, what are we doing? There's a man I admire greatly. And to me, he gave the manifesto on what you do when the society that you are in, you cannot participate in it anymore. How do you possibly live out a life when you're in board meetings and school meetings and all these kind of things and lies are just being told? What do you do? So he wrote it out. I read this maybe three years ago. I'm gonna read it again. This guy wrote this. He says this. Here's, how, here's what you do when your culture has left you. And he's a hardcore Christian. Great guy. He says this. Number one, this is the question. You got to ask yourself. Will he remain a witting servant of the lies? Or has the time come for him to stand straight as an honest man, worthy of the respect of his children and contemporaries? Is that what you are? Okay, dads, Father's Day. From that day onward, he, number one, will not write, sign, nor publish in any way a single line distorting so far as he can see the truth. Will not utter such a line in private or in public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, nor speak it in the role of educator, canvasser, teacher, actor, will not in painting, sculpture, photograph, technology, or music depict, support, or broadcast a single false thought, a single distortion of the truth as he discerns it, will not cite in writing or in speech a single guiding quote for gratification, insurance, for his success at work unless he fully shares the cited thought and believes that it fits the context precisely. Will not be forced to a demonstration or a rally if it runs counter to his desire and his will. Will not take up and raise a banner or slogan in which he does not fully believe. Will not raise a hand and vote for a proposal which he does not sincerely support. Will not vote openly or on secret ballot for a candidate whom he deems dubious or unworthy. Will not be impelled to a meeting where a forced and distorted discussion is expected to take place, will at once walk out from a session, meeting, lecture, play, or film as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda. Will not subscribe to or buy in retail a newspaper or journal that distorts or hides the underlying facts. This is by no means an exhaustive list of the possible and necessary ways of evading lies, but he who begins to cleanse himself will, with a cleansed eye, easily discern yet other opportunities. Woo, you know who said that? A guy by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1975, when he was exiled from the USSR. 
He was exiled because they imprisoned him multiple times, time after time after time. Beat the snot out of him, but he would not recant. He was a man of truth. He wrote a book called Live Not By Lies, and it's brilliant. And that's what that is. That's his final thing. Listen, people, I gotta go. I'm being exiled. But if you're gonna stand up to this Marxist state, you gotta never, never bow the knee to a lie. Imagine if we did that. Imagine if believers started doing that. The moment you're in a board meeting or some kind of a session and the drivel comes up, you just close your book, stand up and walk out. What would happen? I might lose my job. Okay. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we'll remember the name of the Lord our God. We're going to keep his name holy, that this is satanic. Jesus said this about Satan. He is the father of all lies. Where are all these lies coming from? One spot, the pit. What if Christians started to do that? I'm not listening to this anymore. Fire me. Fire me. Go ahead. Non-participation. Remove me if you want to. No problem. And here's amazing thing. When one person does it, it empowers other people. Have you heard of the ash conformity experiments? Let me tell you about them. So 40 years ago, Solomon Ash, he would take 14 people that were actors. They were all paid to do something. He'd put them in a room and then they'd bring in a real person. They'd have a professor draw these lines on the chalkboard. And then it was, which line is the longest? The 14 paid people would all of them choose the wrong line. The real person would be the last person to go. He'd hear one, two, three, four, five, 14 people all tell a lie. And guess what that 15th real person would do? Tell a lie. Like, well, I don't want to buck this trend. Maybe something's wrong with me, right? Tell a lie. It's called the ash. Solomon asked conformity experiments. But then they redid them, and this is what they redid the second time. They brought in those 14 paid actors. They chose one of those actors to tell the truth. So 13 of them all lie, 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 lie. One's like, now it's that one right there. When there was one person that would tell the truth, guess what the real person would do? Tell the truth. Because it just takes one. I think we'd be shocked if we actually started saying, I'm not gonna listen to this drivel, I won't participate in this, I won't do that, how many other people would be like, thank you, me either? It just takes one to start saying, I wanna live for the truth. I will not live for lies anymore. There's a reality check. Right? It's coming for us, this stuff. Came for Nehemiah, remove and replace. But when I read the Old Testament, Every single book ends this way, you know that? They all end this way. The Torah ends in failure. Moses, you blew it, you can't go in. Joshua ends in failure, you didn't take the land. Judges ends in absolute insane failure. First and second kings, all the kings, failure. Jeremiah, failure, right? Nehemiah, chapter 13, failure. You know why? Because humans require more than firm covenants. Humans require more than their own resolve. Humans require more than a built-up wall. Humans require something else. We require outside help. And so here's what the prophet Ezekiel said, and he lived in Babylon. He lived in this time. This is what he says. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It's what God says to his people who have seen failure after failure after failure after failure. This is what, what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Everything that you're worshiping above me, success, relevance, reputation, I'll cleanse you of it. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Old Testament hope that Ezekiel is proclaiming is the good news of the New Testament. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. That heart, that wanter, that mostly wanted bad stuff is removed and you're given a brand new wanter. And even better than that, God says, I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you and now you have the power to do what your new wanter wants to do. That's the good news. That's the hope we have. We don't have to do chapter 13. My theology professor would say this all the time. You're a new covenant Christian. It means this. You have a new heart and a new spirit. The heart is after God now. The spirit is from God. It's God himself living in you. So he says, if you'll do this when you're tempted, when reality checks come, when sin knocks at your door, when it crouches and wants to devour you, he says, if you will stop. Pray. Think, especially in community. Call somebody. Brother, this is happening to me right now. Pray for me. Give me wisdom. How do I handle this? Hey, this just this lie is going around my office right now. What do I do? Especially in community. He says, and if you choose what will make you most deeply joyful, because that's the center of who you are, you'll choose right. Not cheap thrills, because that's what the enemy does all the time. If you choose what is deep joy, new heart, new spirit, you choose what's right. That's it. Every single one of us that has believed in Jesus Christ has right now. You have a new heart. You've been given his spirit. 